Hello, and welcome to the 73 Seconds Podcast. This is a show for anyone committed to ending sexual violence, all about how to support survivors and eradicate violence. And on this episode, we welcome back guest Jean Hosier to talk about potential commonalities between the healing process for cancer survivors and sexual assault survivors. What does it mean to be labeled a survivor and a topic we frequently circle back to, the importance of language and being able to name how we identify ourselves. We also discuss triggers that survivors may face during the holidays and just a few grounding techniques. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. I just want you to know that my goal today is to not say, you know, as many times. I'm going to cut it by half. (laughs) If it kills, if it kills me. (laughs) Well, we're happy to have you. So now I'm self-conscious about saying, you know. No, you don't. No, that's not yours. That one was mine. (laughs) Other people. Well, other people, if they're younger, they say like. Mine is right. <laughs> I think mine is right and like, and you know, I think it's all of them. I, the, you know, it's a Midwestern thing. That's why I, I feel like I talk less because I'm I'm the one editing it. And when I when I'm writing, I overuse like just and so. Mm-hmm. It's like go go through it and slash those like crazy. But mm-hmm. listening to the last podcast, I just could not believe it. I was like, I have got to stop doing that. <laughs> Jean here, I don't want to tell your story for you, but you are a survivor of sexual violence. Everything. Well. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think I just want to open up the floor to you first to kind of talk about those yeah. two identities you have, and then we can kind of yeah. dig deeper into it. Well, first, as people who listen to the first podcast should know, I am a survivor of sex childhood sexual abuse. I start a lot of speeches by saying I'm a survivor of multiple trauma because I always mention, you know, the fact that my father and brother died on an airplane crash when I was four, or the fact that I was raised by a stepfather who was not sexually abusive, but physically and mentally abusive and very cruel. And oh, gee, am I free? Oh, well, and then of course, the third one was that I was abused by a family member between the ages of eight and 14, which is why I have trouble identifying myself as a cancer survivor. It's just like, oh, come on. How many things am I going to have? It, it didn't seem fair that I should have to survive another trauma at my age. So the other, I, but it's not that the word survivor is overused so much. It's just for me, I just get tired of being a survivor. I want to live. I want to live my life. That's one of the mantras that I keep going back to these days. I'm tired of surviving. I just want to live. So I think it would be best if I at least do a little brief history of how the cancer was discovered and how the treatment progressed and everything. Just the facts, ma'am. So I barely had time to absorb the fact that, oh, we were in lockdown quarantine, which started mid-March of 2020. I barely had time to process that. I had had a mammogram in February, I believe, of that year. And at that point, it was a month in the, in the past. And I know I was late for that mammogram, first time in my history, because I'm really good about that. And one of the things that I keep telling myself to do is to like go back in my emails or my appointment book or whatever, try to figure out why I was so late. I mean, not why I was so late, because I have some pretty good ideas about that, but how late I was. It's just that I tell myself every time I, I could get obsessive about that, though, and I tell myself it doesn't matter. And it really doesn't. Cancer can progress very quickly, but it's not like a situation where if you're a month late for your mammogram, you're going to change your outcome most of the time. So anyway, I went, I needed, I got the letter that said, come back for your, for a follow-up mammogram. By that time, everybody's freaking out. I, I kept trying to call Northwestern and schedule a second mammogram, and they kept dodging me, telling me, we're not scheduling follow-ups right now. I called, you know, unless the situation is crucial, we would prefer you reschedule. Well, how do I know if the situation is crucial or not? I am not a doctor. I can tell you, though, that I was starting to get, like, a bad feeling in my head. I can remember sitting in the mammogram room for that mammogram, sitting in that gigantic robe that they always insist on putting on me. (laughs) I could have worn a smaller one, but they just looked at my size and boom, I'm in the massive robe. So it was all over the place. And um, I just, my two best friends from high school had both been through breast cancer treatment in the past six or seven years. And this voice in my head said, what if it's now your turn, the three of you? 
So like I said, I was already having very, very bad feelings. And one day I just had enough. I remember Ernie and I were in the car and I've only just recently started driving a car with Bluetooth or a car that I can do Apple CarPlay in. And I'm still fascinated by the fact that I can talk on the phone in the car. So I just said, I'm calling them right now. And I called and I would not get off the phone. I didn't care how many times the nurse would say, I need you. I need to interrupt you right now. And I was like, no, you're not. You're not going to interrupt me again. I have no idea if this is a bad situation or not. Somebody look at my film and you tell me if I can reschedule, if I can wait six months till things get quieter or if I need to come in now. Somebody finally listened to me. They look at the films and they said, get in here. So I went back. I already knew it was bad. They took, they did the films. They took me straight to ultrasound. I could see what was on the, I could see the mask they were looking at on the ultrasound. I could see and tell from everybody's faces and demeanor that this was bad. So they scheduled me for a biopsy right away, and we had the diagnosis two days later. It was actually not a bad tumor, as tumors go. It was large, and it had grown very quickly, but like the, the plus and minus things, the HER2 this and the HR that, They were all reading pretty good. So I was kind of hopeful that it would not be a terrible course of treatment. Scheduled, uh, and I got lucky too. My husband's, (laughs) my husband has a very good friend who happens to be the brother of the head of the entire Northwestern Breast Cancer Program. And when she heard that I had cancer, she called and offered to be my surgeon. So that saved me from the whole trauma of they were like, oh, pick a surgeon. They're all good. I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? So anyway, I was confident in my surgeon. We scheduled my surgery for as quickly as possible. She had already told me that it would be a lumpectomy, that there was no need for a mastectomy. And in my mind, that meant, okay, you're not going to have to have chemo. At that point, I didn't know anybody who had had a lumpectomy who had also had chemo. And of course, I'm thinking breast treatment has changed so much but so I'm probably thinking back to people who were treated 10-15 years ago but in my mind it was either mastectomy and chemo or lumpectomy and no chemo so I was very hopeful after the um, after the lumpectomy the tumor had to go for some more testing Um, they call it genetic testing and that was the result that came back bad my tumor had like a one whatever they said you have a one in out of three chance of recurrence you're at 30 percent we normally start recommending chemo to people whose recurrence percent is 12 to 15 so doomed I was gonna have to have chemo so we started it right away I had Uh, It was every other week, eight infusions over every other week. So that basically took four months and it was terrible. I had a lot of side effects. I had a lot of nausea. We can go into this in, in more detail later. But so I had four months of chemo. It was complicated by a couple of things. I developed an infection at the surgical site, which which further limited what I could do or eat. Not that I was able to do or eat anything anyway. Hello, there's a quarantine going on. I actually was kind of like, well, I can't do anything anyway. I, I've thought about this a lot. It's almost like I didn't go through a quarantine. I was being distracted by a whole lot of other things. So all the restrictions from the quarantine and everything weren't even on my radar at the time. We started noticing that I was a little short of breath somewhere between the third and fourth infusion, and nobody was terribly concerned about it. And then at the day of the fourth infusion, and by that time I was so sick, up until then there would be some good days mixed in with the bad days. By the fourth infusion, they, they were all bad days. I didn't eat for like eight or nine days at a time. Um, the sores in my mouth and throat had completely blocked my ability, almost completely blocked my ability to swallow, but I was still taking these huge antibiotics. Oh, it was a mess. So then we switched. Then fortunately, my drug regime switched to Taxol, which everybody told me, oh, you'll have, you'll tolerate that much better. Taxol is so much easier. I mean, I was a nervous wreck and I didn't believe it, but they were right. And, and what people warn you about Taxol is that it tends to leave some neuropathy in your fingertips and your toes, which I do have. Is it decreasing? Is it not decreasing? I don't know. I may have a little bit of it all my the rest of my life, but it doesn't, most of the time, it's not something I notice. Or every time I drop something, I blame it on the fact that I've got some numbness and some fingers. But other than that, it's not a big deal. So 
I misspoke. It was around the third infusion of Taxol that they started noticing I was getting a little bit short of breath. So on the day of my fourth infusion, which was my last infusion, and I was supposed to ring the gong and be really, really happy, I still had that kind of sick feeling in my head. And I came out, they, they scheduled, she says, I'm getting a little bit worried about the shortness of breath. She says, I'm going to schedule you for a scan. She said, you could have a blood clot, but I really, really doubt it because you're just not showing enough symptoms. You're just mildly short of breath when you're up and active. So I went ahead for the fourth infusion. They wanted me to ring the stupid gong. I bent over the nurse's table to ring the gong when I was finished, and I completely collapsed. I fell on top of the nurse's table, and um, they immediately got a wheelchair, and they had me up. They had me over in the other part of the hospital in record time for the scan. The scan found a huge blood clot in a terrible place in my lungs, so I had what they called a pulmonary embola, and they sent me right to the ER. I spent... Uh, Spent the night in the ER waiting for a bed to open up in ICU. Then I spent a night in ECU, ICU, and then I spent a night in the um, in the hospital. And I was put on a drug called Lovenox as a blood thinner, which was to be, well, that may not be the name, whatever. I was put on a blood th- thinner that had to be injected. So the big question when I went home was, would I stay on the injections or would I switch to an oral? By this time, I was convinced that I'd almost died, and and I could have. I definitely could have died if that had not been caught in time. So I was thinking that the injections had saved my life. So because my blood level, my blood levels got to where they were supposed to be in 24 hours, and the doctors are still like all wringing their hands. How could she have recovered so fast? How on earth did this not show up sooner? Why isn't she a whole lot sicker? I had like nine of them in the room, like an episode of House. They're all sitting around going, why isn't the patient sicker? And like I would stick up my hand and go, uh, can I answer that question? I just think it my, was my overall cardio health. I mean, I've been working out for 40 years. I sing, I swim. I think I have really, really, really good lungs and that that masked the symptoms and that it also helped me recover quickly. So I was sent home with a month's worth of injections and I started giving myself the injections twice a day. Then the drug company said that they wouldn't renew the prescription. So I was scared to death, but I had to switch to an oral uh, Eloquist, I think it is, which a lot of people are on, and it worked just fine. But I just had a whole lot of questions about, am I going to be on this for the rest of my life? How will we know if the clot is gone? I still don't understand blood clots. Apparently, the clots go away really quickly from the treatment I got in the ER, but the medications are to prevent you from making new ones. So I'm home. I've had the crap scared out of me. I'm I'm The other thing that we had had to address in the hospital was I was also starting to get lightheaded and fainting. Woohoo! Isn't that fun? And I had to I had to diagnose that one too. I said, you know, I've dropped forty five pounds. Maybe I don't need to be on blood pressure meds anymore. And um, we talked to my we I I saw my GP right after that, and and he took my blood pressure and he said, oh, you're way too low. He said, just just stop them right now. So I went completely off blood pressure medicines. We eventually put me back on like a teeny weeny weedy bit, but I didn't. So again, hello, doctors. The patient is fainting because she's dropped 45 pounds. So anyway, I'm back home. The next stage of my treatment was supposed to be radiation. Again, everybody had said, this is not something you need to worry about. It might make you tired, a little skin irritation, no big deal. I developed another infection at the surgical site. I mean, by this time, it had been like five months since my surgery. What am I doing in developing another infection? But I did, and that one took... um, that one took forever to dry up, so I postponed the start of my radiation treatment a couple of times, and finally I just gave up, and I just asked the doctor, can you radiate my breast if it's still dripping at <laughs> the incision? And he was like, yeah, yeah, you're fine. So I had, eight, I, it was supposed to be 19 sessions, I think they dropped it to 18, so I had daily radiation in the morning except on the weekends. And uh, seemed to be going along fine. I started developing some skin irritation the last week. And by the time we were finished, oh my God, my skin was a mess. Anybody who compares it to a sunburn doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, it was just like 
you know, one of my trainers looked at it and said, it's like a big red mouth. I just had like a huge circular red area of irritation under my left breast and oh, did it hurt. And you know, keep using your creams, keep using your special moisturizer. Bullshit. It wasn't doing it. So once again, I got really demanding and I tackled the physician's assistant and I said, you guys talked in the beginning of this about a special soaking solution I might need. Why aren't I using it? So she got it for me and I used the soaking solution twice a day for like the next month. And it took a month for it to clear up. I I consider myself not finished with treatment until almost, it was like a week or two before Christmas of 2019. 2020. Yeah. I am now, it's only now that I consider that I'm having a year anniversary from the end of treatment. Some people don't want a whole lot of communication with friends and relatives during the course of this. I did. I've learned a long time ago that talking and sharing is a big part of my healing from sexual abuse trauma, and it seems to work the same way with other kinds of trauma. So I kept a group of maybe 15, 20 people apprised of the situation through regular emails which then turned into the basis for the memoir, which I just finished writing, which I swore I would never write. We can talk about that. <laughs> I, I keep looking back, and then here, here we go talking about the holidays. I keep looking back because I'm going through a lot this Christmas, and I'm wondering why I, I'm not, why when I look back at last Christmas, I don't remember much or I don't remember it being terrible. I guess it was just because. It really was the end of my treatment, finally. I was still scattered. The, the the treatment was over, but I hadn't even begun processing the whole emotional and mental parts of what I had been through. And um, and I'm finding all sorts of things this year that I, I put away and forgot about. So I don't really know where my head was at last Christmas. Um, but there are some things that have happened that people were claiming like, well, I'm surprised you don't remember that and this, that, and the other thing. So I can only con- conclude that maybe some of the trauma, you know, some of the after effects of trauma that might have hit me last Christmas, I kind of like say, because I'm always depressed at Christmas. Um, I might have sailed through them because it was like, at least I'm finally done with treatment. This year, I think I'm having a lot of the feelings that otherwise I probably would have had last year because this year is relatively good. I mean, the world's in a mess, of course. When isn't it? But I'm done with treatment. I've written a memoir. You know, my life is pretty good again. But I'm not feeling real good. <laughs> I'm not feeling real good at all. So there. Now I'm open for now. Now I'm open for questions and for processing and <laughs> venting and healing and all that good stuff that comes from talking about all this crap. I just keep hearing this theme of not being heard. Oh yeah. And having to advocate for yourself over oh, yeah. and over again. Well, see, that's the biggest question I have out of all of this. How would my treatment have been different if there hadn't been a quarantine on? Because Northwestern is supposed to be the top breast cancer program in the country. And I I heard over the years, oh, during chemo infusions, there's pet therapy. Massage therapists come in. They do crafts. All that stuff had dried up and totally disappeared. They don't even have literature racks. I went through hell trying to figure out what to do about my hair, where to get a wig. They gave me a list of like 30 places and only one was open. I have no idea what would this have been like and would my friends have done a better job of staying in touch with me because most of them did not. Um, How would it have been different if there hadn't been a quarantine going on? I'll never know. I'll never know how much worse it made it. There are people who've told me I was lucky to be able to get services at all. And I just basically say, you don't use the word lucky and cancer in the same paragraph. You just don't do it. There's maybe I was lucky that I wasn't living in some place of the country where I wouldn't even have been able to get treatment. I know that, but there's no lucky when it comes to cancer. And there's no lucky when it comes to getting cancer during COVID. I mean, one of the only good things my oncologist ever said to me was she, when, when I was just feeling real crappy about all this, I said, Claudia, am I lucky? And she said, no, you're not lucky. She said, two terrible things happened to you. You're not lucky. Yeah, because it's, it's like a double whammy of trauma because you got diagnosed with cancer literally at the same time that this pandemic was hitting. Yeah. When hospitals were starting, well, stopping to do certain surgeries only certain people could go into the hospital so also having to go through it 
alone depending on the hospital's regulations. Oh, I was I was alone. They they yeah. never allowed my husband with me during any treatment or appointment. Fortunately, when I was hospitalized, they did let him visit me in the hospital, even in ICU. So, I mean, that was one of the reasons I dreaded going to the hospital. I thought I'd be in prison. And I kept an eye on things at Northwestern, and I even asked them a couple times, because they seemed relatively unaffected. They were able to carry on pretty much as usual. I know they had one whole floor at the hospital that was devoted to COVID patients, but I don't know why exactly, but I guess I, I, I will admit to being lucky. I'm lucky that my treatment was at Northwestern because for some reason they were less impacted by COVID than many other hospitals. Well, Nor, I mean, well, Chicago did a better job of shutting down than most cities. Yeah. The, this collective trauma thing is this theme that I feel like people don't, maybe as a therapist, I see it differently because this is the very first time that therapists or mental health professionals, actually a lot of health professionals overall are having this very first experience of, we are in the exact same situation that our clients, patients are in. And I definitely had to do a lot of reflection on that as far as what does that mean for the way that I work with people? Like, where does my privilege lie? Right? And I think that's one thing that I hope positively comes out of this is that people recognize their as mental health professionals, as health professionals, their level of privilege in being helpers and that, um, you know, we're all human at the end of the day. Because I think that we sometimes forget that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I will definitely admit to privilege. My husband and I had moved downtown to a pretty wealthy neighborhood. But more important at the time was that I was three blocks from the hospital. I mean, if I'd had to drive in from the suburbs and park in their horrendous parking garage, because I was in and out of the hospital. I mean, I was, there were there were weeks that I was there twice, three times a week. And, and the Walgreens, you know, and we were real close to my Walgreens. My poor husband, I think he walked to Walgreens every frickin' day. There was always some different medication. And though I'll go with privilege there. I mean, not everybody who lives within a three-block radius of Northwestern is as lucky as I am financially, but that worked out. I don't even like to think about what my treatment would have been like if I hadn't been living close to the hospital. On the other hand, one of the reasons my husband and I moved downtown when he retired was we wanted to be close to our medical care. So we did it just in time. And I'm very, very grateful that cancer waited till I was 65 and I was on Medicare. It would have been a nightmare. I, I, I drove myself crazy reading through like all 100 pages. I'm talking about 100 pages of benefit statements sometimes. And I kept reading through that, waiting to get to the bottom line that would said, oh, and by the way, your part of this will be $100,000. Never happened. Medicare covered everything. Thank God. Not that we couldn't have afforded it, because we could, but it eliminated so much complexity. How was anybody supposed to be able to figure out all that billing complexity when they're going through chemo? Mm -hmm. There's not much you can do when you're going through chemo. That's one of the reasons I have a problem with the phrase breast cancer survivor. I didn't survive cancer. My doctors, you know, took care of, took care of the cancer. I had to survive the treatment. And there is, it's like, it's like sexual abuse. There is no over it. There is no, well, it's done. Cancer could come back anytime. I had a horrible scare when I went back from my first mammogram, the way they were acting. I thought they'd found something in my right breast less than a year later, which wasn't the case, but could have been. I will be scared for the rest of my life that cancer's going to come back. I think I can confine the, I think I can, I can, 11 months out of the year, I can put it aside and I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the month before my next mammogram and worry about, you know, reserve that for worrying about the cancer might coming back. But the statistics now are one in eight. It's getting close to our statistic. One in eight women is, and I was thinking about that this morning. 
I'm of the generation where our mothers were all being treated with the synthetic estrogen by all the stupid gynecologists who were convinced that estrogen women ought to be taking estrogen so they could be young and fit and with glowing skin and lustrous hair and all that BS. And a lot of us, and a lot of the women my generation were convinced for a long time that was where the uptick in the breast cancer rates came from, was all that synthetic estrogen. Well, I never took any. And women, I see, I, it seems like I turn around these days, everybody either had breast cancer or their best friend, their mother, their sister. It seems to me to be like everywhere. And no one's taken all those synthetic hormones anymore. So, mystery. Well, that goes back to the mystery of, like, sexual violence, right? I mean, it's not a mystery, but like the, well, what did I do? What yeah. part did I play? What if I did this differently? What if I did that differently? There, that doesn't exist in, in the same way like what you're saying. Big, and there's one of the biggest similarities that I have found. I've been reading this book called The, um, the Emperor of All Maladies because it's kind of like a history of cancer treatment. <laughs> they document a, a, an incidence of breast cancer going all the way back to this mummy, <laughs> this poor queen, you know, in ancient Egypt, you know, they found evidence that she'd had breast cancer. But um, I was reading in there that some celebrity who wanted to speak about on speak about it on air, she was still told in the 70s, you can't say breast on the air in our program. This is the 70s. And I have noticed there is still some, there is still a lot of victim blaming. You know, you almost don't have a conversation with somebody without, gosh, do you think maybe your weight, drinking? Yes, I was overweight, less so now. Thank you, chemo. I haven't had more than one drink every like three weeks in maybe 20 years. I don't smoke. I gave up smoking in my late 30s. Don't ask me what I did that may have brought on breast cancer. Uh, other than like I'm, I'm overweight, like awful lot of other people. But that's it. But that is still there in, in a lot of people's minds. And, but you know, how many things do you have to go through? I could spend the rest of this session talking about all the dumb ass things that people have said to me. Because that's a big part of my memoir. It's like, don't say this. Don't say that. Don't say this. Don't say that. That's really, really stupid. And it's just exactly like being a sexual abuse survivor where no one wants to hear anything except you're over it. Oh, well, I had therapy and that's all done. I'm all healed now. We all know what BS that is. But the same thing goes on. People say the same silly things. I even found myself getting mad at Dr. Dr. Phil <laughs> and Dr. Frida Lewis-Hall, who I normally love. She's a real sharp dresser. I normally love those segments, but they're sitting there talking about the importance of having a plan if you're going to go through chemotherapy. People, you can't have a plan. The biggest plan you can make during the bad days of chemo is, am I going to get up out of bed or not? My one friend who'd, who had chemo for 17 months, she told me, she said, all you have to ask of yourself is every day, can you do one thing? And I think she said, taking a shower is half a thing. <laughs> so I would go back and we would text back and forth and I'll go, well, I brushed my teeth. She'd got a quarter of a thing. So it just makes me angry when I hear people talk about, have a plan. Oh, and then the one thing I got a lot was try to stay active, try to be fit. Now, that's the one thing I would try to change if I ever went through this again, but I literally could not face working out. Plus, there was a quarantine on. The pool that I swim in four times a week was closed. Um, I, did, I, I felt very self-conscious. The running track was closed. The parks were closed. I felt very self-conscious about walking around downtown in our neighborhood. You know, I'm the bald lady. My color is good. I'm leaning on my husband's arm, shuffling along. We would occasionally go out and walk like two or three blocks down Michigan and come back. Mm -hmm. And I just hated it. I hated it. And I just told myself as I laid there, you know, I've been working out since I've been in, in my late 20s. When the time comes for it to come back, I will get it back. But for now, I'm laying on my ass and the rest of you go shut up. I do regret that one a little. Um, 
after the blood clot when I went home from the hospital and they were saying, like, do anything you can to be active. Well, my husband and I measured the length from one end of our new condo to the other, which turned out to be 100 feet. So I would do condo laps, you know, and I worked up from like four condo laps to six mm-hmm. condo laps till the best, until I got to like 10 condo laps twice a day. Because by that time, it was cold weather. And I was even less willing than usual to go stagger down Michigan Avenue with my bald head and my greenish skin color. And Kind of That's so funny. But I think you're just reminding me, right? We often say in in our work that the healing process isn't linear. It's all over the place, right? And I think you had mentioned something earlier about, I think that similarity with being a cancer survivor in that you kind of always have that concern that it can come back. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't just go away. There's no like, okay, I've hit this mark, like I'm good to go. There isn't any. Right? So I think the healing process in that way is very similar. People don't understand that. Everybody will tell me, you look so good, you seem so good, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's gone, right? You're done, right? And if it's most people, I just say, yeah, right. But if I'm in the mood to educate, yeah. God, do I ever do anything else? Um, I'll say, no, it's, it's, it could come back any time. I'm not done with cancer. And the truth is, none of us are done with cancer. Reading that book has taught me a lot, the history of it, how it's, it's the flip side of cellular growth. Mm-hmm. None of us are, none of us are free from cancer. I mean, I started reading the book because um, I wanted to stop feeling so terrible about chemotherapy because there is a chance I could go through it again. To the, right now, I don't know how I'd do it, but obviously I could if I had to. And I thought, if I start reading the history back in the days before there was chemotherapy, Maybe I will develop an appreciation of chemotherapy. I mean, what they used to do before chemotherapy, how incredibly invasive and awful the surgery was. They thought in the 50s, they thought the more you took out of a woman's chest, the better off she was. And the massive doses of radiation, it was just terrible. I mean, I probably should be grateful for chemotherapy. Not there yet, but... um, that, that brings me to another uh, connection point. I was just thinking when you were saying it's the opposite of cellular growth, in the same way, when we're, when we're talking about trauma, the terms that I like to use are post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic deprecation, right, or depreciation. And it's almost like cancer is the same, like based yeah. on based on any number of factors, maybe within you, maybe environmental, either growth can take place or it doesn't take place. And a now, mutation a mutation happens or it doesn't happen. Yeah. And for some reason, um, you know, breast, uh, it, it, breast tissue cells seem to be one of the, you know, one of the things that likes to mutate. I'm just um, totally going off scripture. Sorry. I, didn't oh, I can, you know, and I... I <laughs> I can remember when people, when I was talking to people right after surgery, when I would finally, oh, they would always say, do you want a social worker to call you? And I'd say yes. And it never happened. Mm -hmm. This may have been one of those COVID things. Mm -hmm. And then when I screamed enough about, I want to talk to someone, by the time they got people calling me, I was so mad I didn't want to talk to them. So I blew them all off. (laughs) But by the time I did allow, it did happen that I talked to one or two of their professionals and they knew a little bit of my history and, and what I do. And they were saying, you probably, you know, I said, we don't say this to everybody, but you probably understand that the real work of recovery begins after treatment because that's when you start processing. That's when you start emotionally processing the trauma and everything that happened to you. And um, I had a, I had decided I was probably going to need a little therapy. I think I had about six or seven sessions of teletherapy with um, somebody who'd been recommended to me. And it was somewhere in that process that they asked me, they said, well, have you made a plan? Oops, there's that plan again. Have you made a plan for what to do on anniversary dates? And that was when a bell went off in my head and I thought, oh, 
that's when I will start writing the memoir. Because, you know, I'm a writer. You guys know what I do. And everybody, it was like, well, you're going to be writing about this, right? You're going to write another book, right? And I was like, no, no, I am not going to write a book. I've already written two books. Nobody reads them. Why do I want to write a third book? That no, You know, I was very, very defensive about the idea that I would write to heal from this. So when, she, But when she said that and she said, you know, your anniversary, I thought, that's when I'll start writing. And I thought what I'm going to then do is I'm going to take that whole period from April and November and I'll use my email, the emails I set out as like the skeleton of the piece. And then I will add on to that. But the whole thing is I am going to be writing from a year later. Mm-hmm. When I write about the lumpectomy that happened in May, I'll be writing about it in May, a year later. The other great thing was it gave me a lot of time to procrastinate. I had I had like 10 months before I had to finish this, which seemed like a real good idea because it was one of the hardest things I've ever written, maybe the hardest. I almost abandoned it twice, and, uh, and I didn't. Um, has it been healing for me? It's been helpful. I'm not sure yet at this point. I've, I only just finished the first draft. It's rougher than most of my, most of my first drafts aren't that rough. This one is. So I really won't know until I go back and start doing some editing how healing it really is because I changed directions a couple of times. And like I said, I, I stopped and started a couple of times. I'm quite not quite ready to go back and start editing it. I'm giving myself another month or two before I start that process. So, um, but I, I, I do admit that it was healing. I know at one point when I almost stopped writing uh, and I wrote about it because when I'm in a, in a dilemma, I write out my dilemma. So I, I said to myself, which is going to bother you more, Jean? Going back to the dark days of chemotherapy and writing about it or abandoning a writing project? Well, you can guess my answer. The second one was going to bother me more. So I went back to it. It's a huge part of my identity being a writer. It's much more than a profession. It's almost kind of a calling. I was making a speech at the end of October at this one event, and uh, I was talking about callings and what it is what it is you're supposed to be doing. And I just said, I there are days that I don't know who I am, but especially now, but there's one thing I do know. Whoever Gene is, Gene writes. And, you know, it's at the bottom. Stop it, Gene. It's at the bottom of everything. It's such a base. It's it's such a part of my identity that I will never be able to escape it for good or for bad. It's, it's really great to hear that you had at least one anchor point, right? Like, that's one thing that you know about who you are. Yeah. Well, I never made all that much money when I was writing professionally, but it's wonderful if you can find work doing what you love. But if you can't, you do work you don't hate. Or back, and back when I was writing professionally, I had this rule. There were like these three things. It can be easy, or it can be interesting, or it can be well paid. And I always needed to have two of those three. <laughs> these days, if I was still writing professionally, I'd settle for one. So anyway, getting off, getting off subject there, but um, it's really, and, and I'm fortunate because I'm retired and I, my husband and I have the financial resources to do almost anything that we want to do within reason. What's imp- but it, it, it's kind of, the questions I'm asking myself right now, which I think are similar, is like, what's your third act, Jean? What do you want the rest of your life to be? It's mostly sucked. The first two thirds have mostly sucked. So what do you do now to make, because you have all this power. You know, nobody can really, you know, unless someone shoots me down on the street because I'm trying to stop a shoplifter, which would be really, which is really tempting. But unless somebody shoots me down, I have the power, my mother lived to be over 100. I have the power to make the third part of my life be anything I want. So what do I want it to be? I have vowed that I am not going to do things I don't enjoy anymore. If I don't enjoy them, I'm just not going to do them. I know I can't sit home and do needlework forever. Although I can, I, can, I can make a pretty good stab at it. I was an only child with elderly parents who didn't really want me anyway. I got really good at projects and hobbies and entertaining myself. I'm very good at that. So maybe that's why it, it is kind of confusing for me. There are a lot of things that I can do 
what do I want to do? Here I am, 67, asking myself what I want to do. People are urging me to go back to a couple of my books, you know, hire a social marketing guru, you know, they want me to publish the cancer memoir. I, I am thinking of taking, there are websites that want stories, so I am thinking of taking some of those sections, polishing them up, give you know, give them to people like that as stories. They're, they're good. Somebody would jump all over them. I don't know that I want to do that. I don't know that I want social media exposure. I've ducked that all my life, and I'm not, don't really think I should change that now. So these are, these are, these are questions, and uh, and, it, and it's affecting me with the holiday stuff. I'll save it for when we talk about holidays. But there's been a lot of things I've done over the years with holidays because my mother wanted me to, or I thought I should, and it's like I don't want to do a lot of that anymore. I really don't. I like decorating, but only a little bit. I don't really want to put up a tree, <laughs> you know. But it's 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 not so much. Some of it is I'm being triggered, but some of it is just like I don't want to do any more things that I was doing just because I thought I should. I feel like we're almost getting to a natural point to transition. To the <laughs> we can't. We can't stop. I have one more. <laughs> connection between cancer survivor and sexual violence survivor that I've been thinking about. So in our in our prevention that we give right to kids K through 12, we talk about how you're the boss of your body. And I've just been thinking, what does that mean for a cancer survivor whose body is attacking themselves, who is then in the hands of the doctors? Right? This, there's the... We've wow, talked, make it dark. I know! <laughs> but, but we've been talking about similarities, right? Yeah. And it's been like the healing process. But what about like while you're in the cancer treatment, when someone is a survivor of sexual violence, their their body has been... Taken, the autonomy has been taken away, right? And I feel like there can be a very similar sentiment yeah. for cancer survivors as well, and that they lack control within that situation. Like When you're going through treatment, you're the last person mm-hmm. who's the boss. The doctors aren't even the boss. The number of times they tell you they don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes I think they're covering themselves. Other times I think they, they, they honestly don't know. There's just so many unknowns with cancer. But they're giving you these drugs that are actually destroying your body. Mm-hmm. And you have to somehow survive it. The chemo treatment drugs, they attack fast-growing cells because that's what cancer cells are. But those are also the cells that lie in your throat and your mouth. Those are the cells in your digestive system. Those are the cells that regulate your hair growth. You know, so the, the, the cells you need most, or that you're most attached to, are the ones that are under massive attack. And there are so many side effects to chemotherapy. I had, I think I had a couple of the worst ones, but there's a lot of them that I avoided. And every time you have a side effect, that requires another medication. And then that medication comes with side effects. There will never be a time you'll be less in control of your body than when you're undergoing cancer treatment. And I'm afraid it has changed the rest of my life. Knowing what I know now about cancer, I will never be 100% in control of my body again. Another cell could mutate at any time. I have no control over that. I guess it makes me more determined to control the parts that I can which is why, and I think that just gave me some new insight into what I was talking about before we were on the microphones, sorry people, why my body is so different because I lost so much weight, why my hair is different, why I'm dressing different, why I'm choosing different makeup. I once, I thought it was because I was trying to salvage as much good out of this whole mess as I could. But it's probably more about taking control of my body. Well, I'll show everybody. I'll show my body. I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to surprise some people. Jean, what are you doing wearing cream blush? (laughs) Jean, why are you letting your hair grow long? I guess because I can. Mm -hmm. Taking back that control, it was which is the same reason why you don't have to put up a Christmas tree if you don't want to. Uh-huh. Oh, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of beautiful Christmas decorations. My my place looks good enough without a tree. Mm-hmm. I'm not putting up a tree either. You want to know what I'm really not doing? Uh, we'll, we'll consider this a segue. Yes. <laughs> I'm not writing my Christmas letter. 
I normally send out a Christmas letter to friends and relatives, not a card. I mean, I stopped doing the cards. I use pretty stationery and I write well. So people look forward to my Christmas letters. I got out the Christmas, because I actually did write one last year. I got it out and I reread it and it was pretty heartbreaking. Mm. I didn't get gory, but I told my friends and relatives exactly what I was going through. And the people who didn't already know about the cancer, I did not hear from a single one of them. Not a call, not a text, not a card, not a nothing. And I've been sitting around for a couple of weeks thinking, how do I write a Christmas letter to those people? It kind of goes against my grain to not write a Christmas letter. Well, wait, what would you say? I know. I would have to be be inauthentic. Or what if you weren't? What if you were authentic? What would you say? It's really kind of strange to be writing to you people since you obviously don't care enough to find out how I'm doing. I mean, that's what I'd say if I were being honest. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to bother with that. I've got, I used to have 32 first cousins. Few of them have died. There's about five or six of those that I'm close enough to that, and I I thought, well, maybe I could just write to them. I just can't do it because even if I wrote to them, I would say I would I would feel like I would be saying something about, well, Christmas li- Christmas card list is a little shorter this year because you were the guys that kept in touch with me and and they all didn't. And I just thought, why get into any of that? Let's just skip the letter. Let's see what I feel like saying next year. Um, let's see if anybody says, gee, Jean, you know, normally your Christmas letter is the first one I get. I usually hate you because your Christmas letter is out before anybody else's. Curious to see if anyone notices. But I am very, very angry about all that. And when I'm angry, I, I, I don't feel like being nice about it. You shouldn't have to. Well, it's the it's December sixteenth, and I haven't written the letter yet. Not even a nice one to my the cousins that I like. So chances are it's not going out this year. The world won't end. Well, and you don't have to put out something that, like you said, is inauthentic. I just can't do that. I can't write inauthentically anymore. Because that's just draining on you. Yeah. Yeah. They don't deserve it. My whole life has been about talking about, well, my life since 40, (laughs) has been talking about the things people don't want to talk about. I'm not writing any inauthentic Christmas letters. I think that's a good example, right, of of boundaries. Yeah. That not only survivors, but everyone can set during the holidays, right? This This is a time for family and appreciating one another but if if you if there are people in your life you haven't been feeling that with you don't need to respond to them right you can set that boundary and say that's not going to feel good to me I'm not doing that and that can that can be a letter you're writing to someone that can be a, a party you don't want to go to a family member you don't want to see you're allowed during the holidays anytime to set those boundaries and say you know what this doesn't feel good to me I'm going to pass this year. I mean, and then we could always blame COVID this year, too. Well, I mean, I, so over the past two years, I think that I have learned so much about people. Not just people I know, but even people that I don't know very well. And I am no longer going to be going to parties and going to do these things, even if I can do them, just because these people are no longer the people that I want to associate myself with. And if you did something that I have a moral opposition to, or that I believe is in direct opposition to my level of social responsibility, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be a part of that. And you know, my mom, I, I love my mom very much. And she is a very good person, a way better person than myself. And she's like, Oh, what about this Christmas party? What about this Christmas party? No, I'm not going because those people or a direct opposition to the things that I believe in. And and they are doing things that I feel sometimes directly put myself and my immediate family at risk. Mm-hmm. No, not going. Yeah. I would, frankly, kill for a few more <laughs> holiday invitations because I don't... I don't have in common much in common with most of my family because I'm an only child, because my husband kind of all grew up in an unhappy family situation. I always have it, and because my parents were assholes, 
Ratfinks, who fought more during the holidays even than they did the rest of the year. You know, I've always kind of hated Christmas. And I've always been okay most of the time with being alone, relatively alone, my husband and I doing our own thing. We get invited places. We choose whether or not we want to go. But we're also happy with just ourselves and whichever animals we have at the time. Um, where was I going with that? So I wouldn't mind a little more, you know, a little more contact. But people, some people do feel sorry for us around the holidays. So that's not what makes me sad around the holidays. It isn't because I don't have a wider circle of friends. I have wonderful friends. It may not be the widest circle in the world, and most of them aren't in Chicago, but I don't feel lonely in that way in the holidays. I'm still just that eight-year-old little girl wishing that her parents would stop fighting over how he never puts up the tree, he never shops for us. You know, all the crap that I heard from my mother over the years and all the things that she wanted me to do over the holidays so she could show me off and so she didn't have to do them. And I'm 67 and I'm not over that. I used to go into the container store and look at all the beautiful wrappings and I would be like, I just wanted to buy everything. And sometimes I did overbuy and I'd come home and I didn't have things to wrap because there weren't that many people in my life that I bought presents for. So I started limiting myself. You can go into the container store, and if you see one thing that's really pretty, you can buy one roll, (laughs) one roll of pretty paper with matching tags. Mm -hmm. And if you don't use it to wrap stuff up, then you keep it for next year. You know, maybe that's a good thing to be thinking of as survivors. If it doesn't work this year, maybe it will next year. You might be in a a totally different place. And one thing I can tell you about Christmas is that it's going to be around. You don't have to worry that it's going anywhere. One of the things I fought really hard to do over the holidays was make my own holiday. Make a Christmas that resonated with me. And I journaled about it for years and I went through a lot of stuff. Should have gone through some of that as preparation for today. I actually forgot we were doing this, this part of it. But, you know, make your own Christmas. Find the things that have meaning to you. If it means baking cookies, bake the cookies. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, don't. Are we sad? No. Everybody's looking kind of sad. You're looking kind of sad. Mm -hmm. I'm not sad. No, I just, I feel kind of vindicated for the feelings because that's exactly how I feel. (laughs) I mean, I decorated for, I decorated for, well, we had friends come visit for Thanksgiving, but I'm not putting up a tree. I'm not even, I still have not bought any presents for anybody. Mm. I don't really want to. It's not that I don't want to give gifts. I do want to give gifts, but I just feel like I don't want to give unnecessary gifts. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to be purposeful and I still have not found something that I'm like, Ooh, yes, that right. Especially for my nieces. So it's just, I I do, I feel a connection to what you're saying that if I don't, I I don't feel that. and, And I think that's a good takeaway is that it's okay to not feel like you, you know, this way or that way about something just because it's a holiday and everybody should be jovial. Mm. You know. It's kind of nice, actually. It's like letting myself off the hook. It is It is a little bit liberating. <laughs> I always try to get enough done so that I can, the last week before Christmas, I can rest, go look at the lights on Michigan Avenue, go find some place that makes, where people other than me are making handcrafted Christmas ornaments. Um, I have that week. I have that week this year. And I have one more person who I really want to socialize with, and we're going out Monday. So I think I've done a pretty good job of it, and I honestly do think I will feel better next year. My girlfriends who've had, both my close girlfriends who've had cancer, they tell me, you forget these things. And I go, you don't, you know me better than to think I'll forget. And they said, no, but things fade. And I can already feel that the year of cancer treatment is not as big in my life and my memory now as it has been in previous months. I'd like to say one, just one more thing before we completely get off the topic of cancer survivor and sexual abuse survivor. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced there's something I need to learn. I've been reading that book and I've been learning about the history of cancer and I'm fascinated by how what happened with cancer funding in the 50s This one woman and her husband and this doctor out of nowhere just started raising just incredible amounts of money, incredible. 
And the whole face of cancer research and funding for cancer research changed in like five to ten years. And a lot of us in, in our mission area, we look at what happened in, with breast cancer funding and we try to understand that. How did it go from something that you couldn't even say on TV into the 70s into where it is now? And I, I really, I'm feeling so many connections toward what I'm trying to do as a sexual abuse survivor and what has happened with cancer funding and research and, and awareness. I keep thinking there's some connection, some link there mm-hmm. where I can learn some things that will make, my, make me more effective in what I do. It has always been, when I speak and, and write, it's always been incredibly difficult to find the statistics I want about funding because I'm just dying to make the case and have the right numbers to say sexual abuse impacts one out of three. Okay, cancer women. Cancer's impacting one out of eight. They have a million dollars. We have 50,000. You know, draw a correlation between those numbers. Something that happens to one out of eight people gets this much money devoted toward prevention and advocacy and something that happens to one out of three people gets this much. I've always want I want to do that and it is like pulling teeth to get statistics on this subject. It really is nobody wants to nobody wants to share numbers. Um until I until I figure that out, I don't think I'll be very effective going down this track. But I honestly think there's something that I'm supposed to learn from what has happened with the funding of cancer research and the and and what happened with breast cancer awareness as a cause that I'm really supposed to learn and that's maybe what my third act is about mm-hmm. so I can exploit it and change some things that it happens to one out of every 3 people why is that okay with so many why is that okay how can you even hear that and be okay question we all ask ourselves daily I think I mean, if I'm if I'm being honest, it's because people find justifications they think are valuable that really mean nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same thing when, like, if someone says, "Oh, so and so got lung cancer," what's the first question they ask? Were they a smoker? Right. Yeah. As regardless, right, of yeah. whatever they did, they still have it, and it still is affecting them. Yeah. It doesn't that that question is really not relevant. That's interesting. I always think it's just because it's still the one thing that nobody, the the thing that people least want to talk about, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse within the family. Oh, yeah. Because I was going to say, I think think the difference in the funding and and what you're pointing to, which I think would be a fabulous third act, is the visibility, right? When you're saying someone has cancer, there's the doctor's appointments, there's the scans, there's the medicine they're taking. It's, It's noticeable. You were mentioning earlier you would be walking down Michigan Avenue with a bald head. But sexual violence is much more internal. A lot of the times you can't even see the harm that was done to that person, which I think is definitely attributing to why sexual violence is one in three affecting women, breast cancer is one in eight. They're getting more funding because you can see it. Well, it's a safer thing to be an advocate of and about. Yeah. I have a really good friend who wants to partner with me. He was talking about, Gene, we need to, you know, form like a speaking duo and take our act on the road. And I was saying, oh, Tom, you haven't been in my world. Are you imagining there are organizations that want to book speakers on this at their monthly meeting? I said, I've been going down that road for 25 years. It's not going to happen. Willing to work with you on it for a while. But I feel like I know the end of this story, and you don't. That's why I keep looking for a, a different hook, another way. Mm-hmm. I do think there's something I have yet to learn. If I read enough, about, <laughs> if I read enough about breast cancer, oh lord. Mm-hmm. I think there's something there, though. Yeah, definitely. Or maybe I find the right people to talk to, mm-hmm. who will open up and 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 share some of the the numbers and mm-hmm. and tell me what really happened. Why did why did so many corporate sponsors jump on board? Mm-hmm you know, the pink ribbon when they did. Yeah. Yeah. Something else feel good? Yeah. Gene? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming again today. Yeah. I really enjoyed today's conversation. <laughs> this was amazing. Yeah. And I would be very interested in your third act being that correlation between funding. 
well, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I fully support it. If my mother lived to be 100, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, catch us next time in 2022. For a survivor heading home for the holidays, there can be a lot of potential triggers and flashbacks, especially if they're going back home to where the assault happened or maybe their abuser is expected at a family gathering. The most important thing to remember is to take time for yourself and to do what feels good and right for you. If you don't want to go home or go to that family party, then you can do something for yourself instead or hang out with your chosen family. Identifying who is a safe person you can turn to around your family is also a helpful tool. And lastly, if you are having a flashback, a grounding technique you can use is to put your hand on your chest as you breathe, open your eyes and look around you. Use your senses to bring you back to the present moment. What are five things you can see around you? Four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. Remember that you are safe in this moment. The Zacharias Center will always be available to support you on our 24-7 support line as well at 847-872-7799. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll see you in the new year.